The world has been urbanizing at an unprecedented pace. More people live in cities now than at any point in history, and the United Nations estimates that two-thirds of the world population will live in cities by the year 2050. Prior to 2020, many of us believed that our global future and our personal opportunities lay in the world's most cosmopolitan cities, but this pandemic might make us reconsider. The pandemic has exposed and widened our world's inequalities in brutal fashion, and cities have become a magnifying glass in seeing these issues crystal clear. City experts are now confronted with questions on the destructiveness of population density levels, an overwhelmed healthcare system, adequate housing and sanitation levels in cities. People wonder if urban life is as attractive as it once was, and whether cities are prepared for abrupt disruptions in the future, like the current coronavirus pandemic is proving to do now. Welcome to The Global Strain, a podcast that looks at how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting different policy areas and our daily lives. I'm your host, Joel Sandu, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the future of our cities. Joining us today are experts and fellows from our Global Governance Futures program, and we will explore how different cities have been coping with the coronavirus pandemic and what that tells us about urban planning and the future of centers of human connections. The COVID-19 pandemic has raised many questions on the preparedness of cities when it comes to disruptions and disease control. Will this pandemic be a catalyst for cities to build back better, or will this be the source of their demise? What will the future of cities look like? Before we dive into today's discussion, we need to understand what cities are and how cities work. My first guest today is Michela Acuto. Professor of Global Urban Politics at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne. To start us off, I asked Michela if he could give our listeners a brief overview of what makes a city resilient and crisis prepared. I actually think there's, there's, there's been a lot of work on what makes a city resilient. And there's, there's tons and tons of papers and conferences and opinions and mayors talking about it. And, and, it, and it can be many things. But one of the things that COVID-19 taught us is certainly being ready for the unexpected. But be, being ready for an unexpected that, in fact, was very well known. And what I mean by that is that COVID-19 isn't science fiction. We can talk about sort of post-apocalyptic uh, zombie-laden stories. But frankly, there was very solid evidence uh, on the lead up to COVID. And there's been uh, decades of work by people working on infectious disease that would tell you this was quite likely to happen. So in a sense, resilience is really being ready to do something about things that you might actually know you're just simply not prepared for. Even the world's most resilient and prepared cities have been heavily disrupted by the COVID-19 outbreak. So what makes COVID-19 so different from other disruptions that city experts have had to deal with in the past? It's it medically and from sort of, a, I guess, an epidemiolo epidemiological perspective, it is certain the fact that it isn't so dangerous. And it's really hard to say something like that, looking at 11 million cases, and they'll probably be out of date once the podcast is out. But so it, it isn't so deadly and so, I guess, fast uh, effective as other things. Uh, um, uh, very tangible example, Ebola was incredibly deadly, but it also burnt itself off, uh, itself off very fast, in a sense, it killed its hosts very fast. This spreads much faster. 
in a sense, but it doesn't kill as many people. So first of all, you've got that sort of epidemiological element. But I guess the other thing is that it, it is very much uh, that perfect combination of a virus that thrives on the things that make a city thrive, and especially a global city. And from that perspective, again, it is a novelty, lots of parallels by lots of people to the 1918 unjustly called uh, Spanish flu, or in fact, to the cholera years of the 1800s. It's stories that are really common in the history of cities, but because it's so simple in, it, in itself and it travels so well the way people travel, it really hits uh, at some pretty Achilles heels of, of most of our cities. Michaela mentioned that infectious disease experts have long warned policy and urban planning experts that a pandemic like COVID-19 was bound to happen. I asked Michaela why there's such a lack of preparedness, even though we knew this was going to happen. The current crisis is that, sure, we can make it a health crisis, but it's a much more fundamental crisis of, I guess, the entire edifice upon which our cities stand. It's something that is transmitted by people moving uh, and moving internationally. And it is uh, uh, harbored by people being close to each other in, in proximity, agglomerated with each other. Uh, and it is something that doesn't seem so apparent. It isn't as scary or shockingly visible as, say, Ebola or more more virulent diseases. So in a sense, what it does, it really hits at the very basics of what a city is. People coming together, exchanging goods and ideas and traveling in between places. And and, and that, that, that perhaps is why this is particularly not just scary, but fundamentally threatening for a city. It, it challenges its basis. Around the world, we are seeing developing countries and the world's superpowers struggling to contain the pandemic. I asked Michaela, what are the things that make big cities in struggling countries so acutely vulnerable to the outbreak? First and foremost, you're spot on on the narrative there because you're not just mentioning the cities or the countries. And, and it, it is very hard to talk about cities without talking about their countries. And if anything, this reminds us the cities are not islands and that there's very few city states per se, even, even the city states themselves, a la Singapore, can do limited things. So in a sense, uh, their surrounding, not just physical and geographical, but political matter fundamentally. And there the case of Brazil is telling because it isn't just so much the cities uh, that, that it has to do with the governance of a country that completely downplayed the threat that was coming. And one of the last hit, in a sense, of the countries uh, that nationally downplayed it. That's a very easy parallel with the United States, uh, not just downplaying, but I guess sort of continuously misinforming and turning back on itself or what the correct information. So I think there you have some really tangible examples of where the cities themselves have been absolutely, without any doubt, the key, I guess, institutions and vehicles for countries around the planet to tackle the issue and to tackle an issue that by 95% at the moment accounted for cases have taken places in urban areas. So you need the cities to, to act. But at the same time, they simply can't act by themselves and most times don't have the powers to act on certain things. And you see it very well with the stories of Milan and many others, where now it's a continuous sort of, I guess, the expression would be passing the bucket of whose responsibility was it to lock down and how much lockdown and how, how to lock down faster or less. So in a sense there, 
it really reminds me that anything about cities and the world of cities or the urban age, well, it still is a world of countries as well. They matter quite a lot. As the coronavirus continues to spread, experts worry about the impact COVID-19 has on informal settlements in urban areas. Around one-fourth of the world's urban population which is about a billion people, live in informal settlements and slums. Many of these slums lack proper sanitation, limited water, and housing access. The urban poor live in these overcrowded neighborhoods and are particularly vulnerable to the spread of coronavirus. My next guest is Carolina Guimarães, a project manager at Sustainable Cities Institute, Sao Paulo, Brazil. I asked Carolina about what the current COVID-19 situation is like in the informal settlements, also known as favelas, in Brazil. There is estimations that 5.12 million people live in Brazil live in slums, which is about 13,101 agglomerations in 734 municipalities. So you just have a bigger picture of how many people we are talking about. And um, the issue here is that um, when we talk about favelas, we tend to think of Rio or Sao Paulo. And yes, they are the, the ones that have like the greater number, the, the bigger absolute number. But you also have small cities, especially in the north and the northeast, that have like a very big percentage of their households in slums. So the, the, the problem talking about slums is that you're talking about multidimensional inequalities. So you're talking about housing conditions, but you're talking also about a huge diversity of um, lack of infrastructure. Of so you're talking about lack of sewage, lack of water, density. So it's it's very complicated when you're talking about sanitary crisis because in a sanitary crisis, the responses are isolation, so so uh, isolation and washing your hands. And how can you do that when you don't have running water and when you have four to five people living in a very small, you can even say apartments, depending on the favela and depending if they have had some like slum upgrading programs. Some are the, the they're very ill-equipped. Some favelas have um, more rigid walls, whereas others don't. So of course, these people are going to be the most vulnerable. They are the most vulnerable in any type of crisis, be it economic or um, environmental. But when we're talking about pandemia, they're very vulnerable. So in the beginning, we, we thought that um, uh, this was a crisis, like a, a crisis within the rich communities because it was mostly related to people who traveled. And um, in the beginning, everyone was very worried. Okay, when this crisis, hit the favelas we're going to be in big trouble because of the density so the multiplier effect would be much higher than um in some people call it the asphalt and the in the favelas there is this um differences and um and, and of course the multiplier effect would be much higher and people are very worried in the beginning also favela dwellers didn't believe there was a huge movement to um create awareness within the communities for them to really understand that this was a, a huge problem and it was coming and now yes and now we can see that in um districts in neighborhoods where you have highest numbers of households in slums they're go they're actually having the highest lethality rate so cases per mortality so you see that you see for example when you compare different districts um especially like when you look at sao paulo where sao paulo is 
many cities within a city, you really see this difference where you see the uh, number of cases, but the lethality is much higher in poor districts. And there is for many reasons beyond the infrastructure, the water, the infrastructure. Uh, people also are people that cannot do home office. They mainly, they are like essential workers, like they have to work in supermarkets or they are um, informal workers also. So they do not have like their money saved up or they don't have this support so they have to to gain their breadwinning they have to be in the streets carolina shared with me a few ways the brazilian government has been responding to the crisis in informal settlements so there has been some grand policies like the the minimum uh, emergency wage that the the federal government has released that has supported some of these families the unemployed the informal for three months 600 reais, which is about now that our currency is devalued, about 100 euros a month that has supported that. And people have also linked with support to Bolsonaro. But these people are in, uh, they're hungry. They're, they don't have like the infrastructure and all the, um, all the infrastructure now is emer emergency different um have tried to to reply in different ways but mostly like in favelas the the interventions have been community awareness training people to uh, uh training medical agents to go there to talk um some have um uh, hired ambulances there has been like for example uh, support for some installations of hospitals, some installations of ER beds, some um, uh, medical equipment. Um, but I think that it has been very slow and it has not scaled. I think that these communities are very dense. Sometimes we're talking about communities of 400,000 people, like especially in Sao Paulo. And it's very complicated to, to answer so quickly to all these people. So I think that the, the, the answers that have been very scarce, yeah. I think very scarce and very punctual, ad hoc. Some experts estimate that the unreported infections of COVID-19 in favelas to be extremely high, which is why local residents started to count the cases for themselves. I asked Carolina if the response to COVID-19 has fallen into the hands of local residents and community leaders, and she shared with me some accounts of efforts made on the ground. Well, they're taking matters for their own hands first because, well, they they already aware that the government hasn't answered to their demands for a really long time. So they normally take matters for their own hands. You know, like the living in favelas is lack of public policies, lack of affordable housing for people who don't uh, who cannot live in the city center, for example. So depending on the city um, where you are talking about, um, favelas can be more mainly in Rio, where uh, it's very well located, but most favelas are in the peripheries or in suburbs. So they have to take matters for their own hands normally. And then now they are in an emergency situation and they don't see the government responding. Um, I think that it took a long time for a government to respond and civil society was much quicker. They understood, especially community leaders, associations, they understand their own vulnerabilities and they thought, well, what can we do? I think that the beginning, the first responses was a lot of community awareness, communication, getting to places where it's very hard to get. So within the communities, for example, um, in high risk areas and um, 
talking to people, going house to house, and and of course trying to connect with government. I think that the government has replied in terms of like providing food baskets to some places, providing installations of sinks in some places. But I think the solutions have not scaled. The solutions can have not met the food demands. So yes, you've seen a lot of communities uh, leaders dealing with that. From Carolina's comments, it seems that the government has been responding with ineptitude to the crisis. So I asked her if the private sector can step up in mobilizing efforts in addressing the COVID-19 crisis. I think there has been um, there there has been a lot of interesting initiatives, especially from civil society who has um, networks and also has um, contacts and bridges with like big philanthropers and also with um, and also a big context with millionaires so there has been interesting movements happening so um, I can um, mention a few examples so like Union Rio which is a platform that has gathered more than 40 million reais um, even more now we're talking about um, less than 10 million um, euros but um, that's quite a hefty amount here and, um, and, and the replies have been mostly that money has been mostly for buying like uh, food baskets and then also um, sanitation equipment and then um, in products and then also for uh, protection equipment for medical for doctors and nurses also um, this kind of platform has been developed in other cities so it was like first in Rio and then it has been developed in other cities where a bunch of civil society who has contacts are putting together through groups of WhatsApp and then afterwards it goes online and then people can donate so that has been ha um, happening a lot we are we are talk hearing a lot about like social impact with a focus on black entrepreneurship and then also people talking about it i think that um, the amounts have increased our biggest private bank itau has put together a huge fund unfortunately uh, it's currently being um it has a, a director group and they're all black uh, they're all white men unfortunately there's no woman um in this um, um committee but it's very interesting what they put together like um so it, it's it's huge the, the the what this private bank has put together we're also seeing for example match funding opportunities where um foundations put together like if civil society puts one how the, uh, they will put one how for different initiatives. So you have you have seen it's common to see that a few different um, civil society initiatives are being funded through this type of crowdfunding, match funding opportunities. And I think that lots um, of conversation has been going on about like philanthropy and social impact. And, and I think people are becoming more aware that um, we have to donate. There is um, Brazil is not um, rank very high um, in this uh, world donating index when you when you look at different countries so um, we don't apparently we don't have this donating culture but I think that is also related to lack of incentives in terms of like fiscal taxes because it's very different when you look at for example the US right that you have lots of incentives for um, philanthropy and also foundations but I think that answering mostly your question how can the private sectors continue to support i think that now we really need to look at emergencies so we're looking at hunger we're looking at lack of unemployment we're looking at installation um, of 
quick water tanks of um, uh, sinks. So we have to think in this um, perspective of a sanitary crisis. But in the long run, I really do think that um, this private sector has to be more responsible and support responsible um, public sector policies who um, really pay their own ex negative externalities that they impose in, in in societies in terms of like uh, environmental pollution but I also think of like paying better um, or giving more benefits to um, to their employees or capacity courses because we still have a very um, big unskilled population. I, I think that it's not, not lobbying to cut, you know, like uh, their own um, dividends. I think that a lot of things that the private sector can help in the long run for us not to have such a vulnerable population because in the end, we know who is going to be the most impacted. While the conditions of informal settlements are perfect breeding grounds for the coronavirus to spread, some places, like Taravi, one of the biggest slums in the world in the Indian city of Mumbai, have managed to contain the virus pretty well. What's even more shocking, Taravi residents who contracted COVID-19 have a recovery rate of 50%, which is higher than Mumbai's 46% rate. So how did a place where social distancing rules are impossible to implement, a place with major public health concerns even before the coronavirus, manage to contain the outbreak? I spoke with Yamini Ayar, president of the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. Yamini shared with us some of her insights on the current situation in India. India went into a lockdown on the 25th of March, uh, which has been billed as amongst the strictest, harshest lockdowns across the globe. Uh, the consequences of that lockdown, uh, in some senses, were far more heavy on the economy uh, than it did uh, on uh, our ability to manage the pandemic uh, itself, partly because we locked down when we had very, very few cases. And the economic consequences really made it impossible for a further lockdown. Uh, and so we began to unlock just at about the same time uh, as the number of cases started rising. To some extent, this was expected, but I think the pace at which the surge took place uh, was not quite as expected. Uh, in early June, India, uh, the Delhi, the city from where I'm speaking, uh, began to see a very, very big peak uh, surge in cases uh, and the doubling rate was increasing very rapidly. It also was a time when I think the space at which the, the disease began to surge uh, caught some of our policymakers a little bit by surprise. They were expecting a surge but not quite at this pace and so it became amply clear very early on in early June that neither the hospital system nor the wider public health system and more specifically our capability to test was in in place. But I think things have rapidly seen a turn. Uh, so fingers crossed we've peaked and things are going to get uh, a little better soon enough. In India as a whole, uh, again, just like in Delhi, we have seen a surge of cases. We crossed 9 lakh cases and uh, the doubling rate is high. So mm. we are certainly in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, things are not slowing down by any stretch. But one important thing to remember about the way in which the COVID-19 is unfolding in India is that it's unfolding in a very clustered regional 
way. So it's not like all of India is seeing a surge at the same time. India, for for our listeners who may not be familiar, is an ex- one of the largest countries in the world and certainly the most, the second most populous. And so you're seeing surges in different parts of the country. And as these surges take place and places peak, you see new surges in other parts. Given the current situation in India, Dharavi's successful efforts to contain the virus might seem all the more surprising. Yamini shared with us some insights and explanations behind this phenomenon. One thing that uh, Mumbai has done, and specifically in Dharavi, that in fact I think Delhi can learn from, and uh, I think most uh, other states in India that are currently dealing with uh, surges and potential surges must learn from, is the very, very active involvement of the community, particularly uh, community-based organizations, non-governmental organizations, and most important the local municipality. Uh, you know, I, I must uh, give the disclaimer that I don't live in Mumbai and I haven't, mm. uh, of course, visited in the against the backdrop of the pandemic. Uh, but what I've learned from how Dharavi handled the process, it, it tells you some, it offers some very important insights. Uh, in the early days, there was an attempt to sort of follow the containment strategy and really do this in a very top-down way. But, uh, and, and, you know, the attempts made were being made also to do certain kinds of surveillance, identify people with symptoms, bring them because our testing rules in India require, and I think that's the WHO norm as well, that you do symptomatic testing. And it was found very soon that a place as densely populated as this and a place in which people live cheek by jowl where Mm. basic hygiene facilities that most in the West are used to simply don't exist uh, that we need to look for very different kinds of solutions and in fact there were a lot of newspaper reports of uh, residents of these areas frankly fearing the power of the state. This is a very intrusive and invasive process and uh, people did not want to be taken away from their homes and placed in isolation centers away from their families. Uh, people did not want to be there. Were, were, were feared harassment from the police, uh, which is which is the norm in many parts of the world, and certainly for the poor in India. And and therefore there was a fair amount of resistance. I think what really changed was that uh, the approach shifted from this kind of top-down approach to a bottom-up approach, where community organizations, NGOs working in the area, were brought in to mobilize citizens, raise awareness, make it a little more participatory and engaged, and really just focus on contact tracing, which they did effectively and rigorously. And I think that's one of the reasons for the success story of Dharavi, uh, which did against the odds seems to have at least thus far managed the containment. Across the globe, people are suffering from economic downturn and job loss. So I was curious to know how residents in Dharavi or other less developed areas in India are coping with this. You know, of course, when the country locked down, uh, unemployment surged significantly. Don't forget 90% of India's economy is in the informal sector. Significant number are casual workers and wage workers. And that's one of the reasons why you saw, despite the lockdown, vast majority of India's workers who have come from rural areas to cities in search of work, making their way back home uh, because they had no incomes. And in fact, citizens who belong to the poorest income deciles, uh, a large number had... uh, 
uh, don't have enough savings to be able to tide by even a week without wages. So this led to, was one of the reasons why we saw this mass movement of people from cities back to their homes. And, uh, you know, once the economy has unlocked it, there, there are still, of course, uh, significant slowdowns uh, across the board am- amongst key drivers of the economy. Rural employment has improved marginally, uh, has improved significantly rather because of a, a huge influx of a social safety net program from the government. And uh, urban employment has increased somewhat, but wages are really down. Uh, so like uh, everywhere across the globe, there has been an economic slump and uh, people are suffering. And I don't think that the Indian government is doing enough in terms of being able to provide the kind of uh, sort of stimulus package that is necessary to strengthen demand amongst for Indians. So many of us have been uh, arguing for some, of course, some relief has been given, uh, but many of us are arguing that this relief is is certainly nowhere near enough to deal with the long-term economic challenges that the pandemic is confronting. When you're dealing with a lockdown or when you're dealing with uh, the uh, potential surge in cases, one of the challenges that this is bringing up is that it's making uh, people's willingness to test, especially asymptomatics, to test much harder because people do fear a loss of income if they are asymptomatic and placed in quarantine centers. So I think the Indian government has to think much harder about how to innovate to encourage more testing, more demand for testing. Dharavi's relative success raises questions as to whether the density of urban settlements are the main reasons behind coronavirus' spread. In Asia, Many cities have also shown successful approaches in containing the virus, despite high population densities. While many criticize that Asia's aggressive approach, such as massive lockdowns and surveillance, may not work for countries in the West, Hong Kong might offer another explanation. The city with a population of 7 million has, at the time of this recording, 71 coronavirus-related deaths, even as the city is hit with the third wave of the coronavirus. The city is also uniquely positioned close to the origin of the coronavirus and has confronted with a number of diseases in the past, such as the swine flu and SARS. Some say that community efforts have been at the forefront in containing the spread of the coronavirus in Hong Kong, and the city's experience can offer us insights and lessons into the containment of coronavirus in cities. I spoke with Ziwei Ng to learn more about what is happening on the ground. Ziwei is a former fellow of the Global Governance Futures Program and now a corporate lawyer in Hong Kong, specializing in charities law and impact economy. Ziwei shared with me how Hong Kong has been dealing with the coronavirus so far. Indeed, I, I think with the experience of the um, the other pandemics that you mentioned, and especially SARS in 2003, I think it has helped Hong Kong address and respond to COVID very quickly in the early days. So um, from the very beginning, I think right after Chinese New Year, we already went into closing down schools, asking civil servants to work from home, and people quite quickly, the public uh, was all wearing masks. And in fact, there has been some very interesting data that came out. The Jockey Club School of Public Health and Primary Care at the Chinese University Hong Kong, where they did an online survey end of January. And at that point, they realized that the, the risk perception in Hong Kong was already really high. 98% of respondents were worried about the outbreak. Um, nearly all respondents of over a thousand respondents were following uh, the news about the disease very, very closely. 
and about 90% of the respondents have enhanced their personal hygiene practices. And this was end of January to um, early February. So we never had any debates in Hong Kong about uh, whether we need to wear masks or not. It was done uh, very early on. So I guess um, that also led to how uh, Hong Kong was perceived as a success story at the very early days of fighting COVID. But uh, we did, I must let you know, and you probably already know that it has came back twice. And right now, uh, we are actually in our third wave of um, search in numbers. With one of the most expensive housing markets in the world, many in Hong Kong are forced to live in small housing spaces, and in some cases, caged homes and subdivided housing. There are about 200 thousand people living in these subdivided units. So for uh, international listeners, these basically housing uh, where oftentimes um, individual would only have the living space um, the size of a bed and the reason why um, sometimes they're called coffin homes, sometimes they're called cage homes. Uh, while the numbers are a lot lower now today, there are still a lot of people living in subdivided units uh, where maybe a whole family would only live in a space of like really slightly more than like maybe a bed space times two, right? So yes, it is very dense and you can imagine that it could become a hot bed for, for the, the spread of a virus, but luckily we haven't seen that. I asked Ziwei how Hong Kong has managed to contain the spread of COVID-19 within these communities. Partly, it's definitely uh, it's still down to how alert everyone is uh, with wearing masks and sanitation, but also the civil society and, and, and community has is re- responded quite quickly early on too. For example, um, there were quite a lot of volunteers that were already going into these buildings to install hand sanitizer, to um, working with universities to do uh, some special sanitizing initiatives. Ziwei mentioned a number of community efforts that contributed to the mitigation of coronavirus spread in subdivided housing communities in Hong Kong. So I asked her whether citizens' efforts of using civic infrastructure during this pandemic has been the key in mitigating the spread of COVID-19 in Hong Kong. There's a lot of high alert, right? So people, as I mentioned in the beginning, there is a high uh, risk perception, and and so everyone was uh, was in a way doing their part. And then and then the uh, the when it comes to civil society and business responses, it's really even though government, uh, I must say, government also did their part, especially in early days uh, with some of the like closing down schools and 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 asking civil servants to work from home. The community um, has a big part to play uh, for Hong Kong success. So so far, even though we're in third wave, right? And um, you can see from early on when there was a shortage of masks, um, businesses were stepping in, uh, civil society was stepping in, they were sourcing masks from elsewhere, they are setting up, like businesses are setting up mask production facilities in Hong Kong. As you know, Hong Kong comes from a textile industry origin, so um, quite a lot of those businesses have set up such mass production facilities in Hong Kong. Businesses are also working, according to the uh, NGO sector, in quite an unprecedented uh, level of collaboration with a civil society, like giving resources, giving money uh, to civil society to hand out to uh, to work with the really needy populations. A civil society uh, also responded quite quickly because the government um, has has been giving out support, but mainly focused on loans and subsidies, right? But civil society has been really uh, working on 
providing support for people who lost their jobs, helping kids cope with、uh, learning from home, especially the underprivileged、uh, families. And I think in April, I think、um, Atlantic has also run a story on how the year-long、uh, civil movement in Hong Kong has also、uh, contributed to a lot of、uh, community networks already. So it makes、uh, mobilizing of volunteers a lot easier,、uh, mobilizing of resources a lot easier as well. But all in all, I would like to say that ac- across political divides, civil society businesses have responded quite quickly this time round. And oftentimes, people think that in fact they are the ones pushing、uh, the government into、uh, certain actions. And I will I would like to give、uh, a particular example where community uh, uh, shaped government response. So at the beginning, well, not actually it was like last week or or two weeks ago, there was with the third wave get, getting serious. So the government、uh, wanted to introduce a, a ban banning dining in all day long. And so while while for people like like myself and other people who work in the offices, we can still、um, have lunch by takeaway and、um, and eat in our air conditioned rooms. But where do all the non office workers go, right? So. Within, like, there was so much negative crit- criticisms from the community on this measure, especially when photos、uh, show that these workers have to eat on the streets and really. With very little dignity, and then it was raining and everything. So,、um, government had to do a U-turn and scrap this policy uh, with, uh, after two days, right? And also during that time,、uh, for those two days, you really see a lot of community spaces opening up to welcome workers to have lunch there. So, I think、uh, overall, you you do see that the community is 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 playing a big role in shaping how、uh, Hong Kong as a city responds to COVID. And one last point I would like to share is、um, philanthropic. Foundations have responded very quickly in Hong Kong too. So、um, there were many different、uh, schemes that were introduced quite earlier on. Whether it's helping NGOs move online,、um, helping、uh, students get data. Card to uh to do online learning or setting up funds to really fill the gaps like a found a group of foundations that I work with immediately set up a loan fund for social enterprises as they、uh, fall through the crack amongst all the different uh schemes that were、uh, made available after COVID and I think and there have been a lot of innovation around so the government has introduced a ten thousand dollars Hong Kong dollars handout cash handout I think it was end of. February and then、um, a lot of NGOs have also、uh, come up with ideas. How do you match these ten thousand dollars for the truly needy NGOs and and individuals? So there, you you see that there is a lot of such interactions、uh, throughout the past、uh, months. While Hong Kong has enjoyed relative success in containing the coronavirus, things might be changing. Many countries are still struggling with the second wave of the coronavirus, while Hong Kong is dealing with a third wave. I asked Ziwei what went wrong. And what might have contributed to a third wave in the city? The second wave came in mid-March, and the common understanding now is that it was mainly cases that were brought from outside Hong Kong because that was the time when there were a lot of returnees coming back to Hong Kong, whether from Europe. A lot of students came back from Europe、uh, at that point, and so that was the time where there was a surge, and that was in mid-March, and that second wave. Third wave was, I would say, took people more by surprise, and that happened in early July. 
And the general understanding is that this is actually due to a policy loophole because there were certain、uh, categories of people that exempted from quarantine, including sea crew,、uh, flight crews, truck drivers that、uh, that go across the border fighting COVID. It has been a really a balancing act for for policymakers. Considering public health as well as economic growth, and I can go into a little bit more on、uh, the economic growth and the hit. But so I guess from the government side that there were there was a need for there to be exemption, but for the general public, there there are definitely a lot of doubts whether these people should be completely exempted from quarantine, whether there should have been some intermediate steps to make sure that there are there is still enough supervision. But anyway, now I think we have enough figures or cases to trace. Back to at least certain people in third wave comes from the sea crew members, and because it has already all been like the third wave is really all over Hong Kong, right? Because these people have already a lot of people have already been interacting with the communities all all across Hong Kong, so it's really hard now to really pinpoint it to a certain community because now it has spread, and I yeah, and actually third wave since beginning of July, um, we are now. Uh, facing well,、uh, yeah, we're now facing actually the toughest bans since the beginning of the pandemic. We have no dining in after six p.m. at all. All the、um, gyms and entertainment venues have been closed. We are limited to、uh, no more than two people in public.、Um, Uh, you'll be fined if you don't wear a mask. So yeah, we are now facing the toughest ban, as you mentioned, and、um, we still have not seen the peak yet. It seems of third wave. So really,、um, it will take some time. Ziwei shared with me what lessons the rest of the world can learn from Hong Kong's situation, as Hong Kong and the Ravi show. A timely response, whether it be from government or its people, is critical in containing the spread of coronavirus. As countries are desperate to flatten the curve of COVID-19 spread, some cities have implemented smart city technologies to contain the pandemic. For example, South Korea has implemented the use of artificial intelligence in cities to collect urban big data in real time. The data tracks the movement of patients and traces potential cases of COVID-19. This. Coupled with mass testing in the country, has been cited as reasons behind South Korea's success in containing the coronavirus. So, will smart city technology dominate the future of urbanization? Here's Michaela again, as he shares with us some examples of smart city practices that made a real difference in the pandemic. The few things that I would point out is there's many examples from the digital sector and I guess the digital industry that are worth looking at because they show you the. Power of smart or augmented information in cities and the likes of it, and and it's fairly mundane things. The city map,、uh, which sort of provides information for people to move across cities,、uh, has done a really great job at tr- tracking changes in mobility in cities,、uh, and has a publicly available mobility index for the cities.、Uh, To show you the impact of the lockdown, there's many, 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 many other things like that. You can go all the way to if you want to go back to Singapore, sort of a relatively sci-fi a spot, a sort of robot dog that patrols one of the、uh, one of the、uh, parks in Singapore, and it's and, it, and it's a rather scary for many people sight to see sort of this automated AI dog that goes around and checks who's on the park. I think the key things for me there is. There's a lot of talk about the power of the digital, but a the information is another again long-standing story of any outbreak and pandemic. 
and that the, the way the London and New York, for instance, came out of the devastating cholera epidemics of the 1900s was in fact the famous 1954 Broad Street map by John Snow that in a less high-tech way, but still very similar, went and plotted where the outbreak of cholera was in London and figured out it was about the, the sanitation of the city. They just simply needed to fix the pumps, the water pumps. The World Health Organization has pointed out that this pandemic is also an infodemic. In simple terms, there's way too much information available about a problem, making it difficult to find a solution to that very problem. Along with the virus, the spread of information and misinformation has been unprecedented compared to other outbreaks. Here's Michele with his take on the importance of basic digital services we rely on during the pandemic. There's been a tendency to overemphasize the power of AI and lots of things about sort of our artificial intelligence saw it coming first, the, the blue dot mapping system, the health map uh, uh, systems, the uh, MIT technology reviews as well. This stuff picked it up even before people figured it out. And if you scale, put down a scale of how useful the technology has been, well, actually, the basic digital services upon which we rely, and I'm unfortunately or fortunately talking about things like Facebook-based communities uh, and WhatsApp uh, information services, which WHO has as well available for people, those have been the backbone of the way people have survived through the pandemic. So in a sense, I've said it a couple of times, it, it really, this has put di basic digital services even more essentially at the heart of fundamental services for people in cities. There are technologies and policies in place that helped track and trace the outbreak of COVID-19. On the other hand, some experts have serious concerns that the policies implemented during this time will still be in place when the pandemic is over. By the way, we have a whole episode dedicated to the impact of COVID-19 on surveillance, so do check it out. Now, with information comes power and influence, and people worry that the power governments now hold with the information of its citizens could be used against them. So I asked Michaela if COVID-19 has changed the public discourse on the use of smart city technologies. From the work that I've been involved in, in I guess sort of the CD response to, to the crisis, uh, the question of uh, whether this is changing people's, uh, and in my case of urban dwellers, perception and trust uh, of digital systems. Uh, and perhaps sort of the most common ones, uh, and there's a good uh, service actually provided by MIT Tech Review, which is the COVID tra tracing tracker, which is a tracker of the trackers available out there, or the various apps uh, that countries have rolled out. And it's interesting to put them all next to each other on fundamentals like is uh, uh, what kind of data are you giving out? Is the system pinging other cell phones or is it doing something more complicated? There certainly has been sort of wavering sentiments about this. It really depends. But it also has been a relative successes, but not sort of, I guess, blanket successes of these kind of things. Uh, Australia is quite telling. It's, it's working, but it isn't providing a sizable difference is providing some difference to the modelers. So I think the key thing there is actually, as I was just saying before, the impact of the crisis in putting people's trust in digital services, Amazon deliveries, for instance, has, has been exponential. And that does two things. We take those things even more for granted in our daily lives. And those things are easily disrupted. 
And in other, in another sense, we take them as easily for granted for everyone. In a, in a developed country, 50 to 60% of the workforce can work from home, frankly. And if you go to most developing countries, that drop downs to 10%, 15%, 20% if you're lucky, uh, a la Turkey, for instance. So from that perspective, things that we take for granted, like being able to do our job from our desk, uh, like we're, we're currently doing, doesn't simply apply to the massive digital divide that sits behind all of this. What are some of the implications governments and the public must consider before moving on with Smart Cities Development Plan? I think one of the key things that, that you learned there, and actually I learned that Frankly, because yes, I come from cities, but actually I'm a, I'm a country boy. And, uh, and in a sense, I'm speaking right from the middle of the countryside. So I sort of I grew up in the middle of farms rather than the, 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 the city. And I say that tongue in cheek. But the reason why I say that is one of the things that really stands out is the power of community. And the power of community can be enhanced by digital services and digital revolutions. But I guess the investment there, and that's something really that goes back to the story of Singapore or Hong Kong, where it really worked, is the coupling of the smart innovation and the respect and empowerment of communities. And that lots that it's done in high rise, high density spaces like those of Hong Kong or, or Singapore goes hand in hand with tight communities there doing things at the same time. So there's that element. And I guess the other element is that this isn't also a question of dashing for the latest glitziest app and latest sort of 5G network because we still live in a fundamentally splintered urban world where many people simply don't have access to the most basics part of that or they have access but it's not inclusive of them simply for instance by access in their own language and some of the hardest hit of the crisis are the urban migrants typically low wage typically not speaking the country's language as their first language. While smart city technologies might be the future of urbanization, some wonder if urbanization will still be happening at the same pace prior to the pandemic. The very things that used to make cities so dynamic are now detriments that make them so vulnerable to the impact of COVID-19. The once lively service sector in cities are hammered, while its dense populations that once fueled innovation is now the reason why transmission has grown at an exponential pace. Will economic development in cities slow down? And what will the future of the world's cities look like? My next guest is Max Boucher. Max is a former fellow of the Global Governance Futures Program and a research analyst at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. He is currently working on the Global Cities Initiative to help U.S. and international metro areas develop global economic strategies and forge international partnerships. Max first shared with me his impressions of urbanization right now in the midst of the pandemic. I think that uh, that cities indeed have often been seen as a scapegoat in the pandemic. You know, they've really got a bad rep. Uh, they've been accused, you know, of being uh, uh, the the reason why you know the COVID nineteen crisis has been so, uh, so 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 bad, and that living in cities basically made people more vulnerable. And so logically, the consequence would be that well, then people will, would flee cities to, to be safer. And, well, I think that uh, it's often putting the problem in, in the wrong place because some cities around the world have actually uh, reacted very well. When you look at, uh, at Hong Kong or, or Singapore, these are extremely dense cities, even denser like New York City. 
very urbanized, but uh, with actually uh, a COVID-19 crisis that has been uh, not as bad as, as other cities. So I think cities itself are not a problem. Uh, density is not a problem either. Often it is about how cities are managed and how much cities are, are crowded. And, and this idea of, of, of crowding and cities that are poorly planned, I think are, are really the, the reasons why the, the crisis has been so bad in, in some cities. And, uh, when you look at nursing homes, you know, or, or prisons or, or cruise ships, for that matter, really show that uh, that crowding, crowding, and not cities have been uh, have been the main problem. In May, Facebook announced that it will permanently embrace remote work, even after coronavirus lockdowns end. I asked Max if the private sector's traditional idea of collaboration in close proximity is changing, and whether he thinks other companies will follow suit. When you look at history, I can't think you know, of another such rapid, I mean, outside of the context of war, uh, a disruption you know, in, in the human experience. The fact that suddenly, I mean, like millions and millions of people around the world suddenly stayed home to, to work. I mean, personally, it's been, it's been great. I don't have any kids uh, and I'm lucky enough to, to live you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a small house where I had an office space. Uh, but I think the first thing I really want to, to highlight when we, when we think of this disruption is how unequal it was. You know, it's been a time for teleworking, but it's been also a time for uh, you know, f- frontline workers uh, who were not able to telework. Yeah. And I think this crisis had a positive outcome in the sense that it forced us to recognize, you know, what many essential jobs were uh, when you think of like healthcare and and grocery shops. And I think that's something that I really try to, to keep in mind, you know, when, when uh, we think about the, the disruption in, 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 for the future of work. About face-to-face meeting, I'm convinced that we are still uh, losing, missing something when we are working from home. When we think about the, the transfer of knowledge, you know, uh, what everything that innovation requires in terms of face-to-face contacts, in, ter- in terms of uh, the proximity of people, that creates those, uh, those spillovers you know, of, of, of information. I still personally feel that we are losing this when we are uh, teleworking or, or on Zoom. And that is the reason why I'm still uh, confident that cities and the agglomeration of people in a place have, uh, have a future. To your question about uh, office space, this has been incredible to see all these companies often committing to enable their employees to, to work from home. Yeah, you mentioned Facebook. Yeah, I think it's almost like 50% of its uh, employees would, would be able to work remotely in the future. And Facebook employing, I think, 40,000 people, it's, it's a lot. Is the WeWork model dead, for instance? Interestingly, first, I think that office space will definitely be less in demand in the future. All those major firms that, have, that are renting very large office space in downtown areas you know, to provide their employees with uh, amenities and, and, and access to transportation and culture, I think these are indeed going, going to, uh, to decrease. But if more people work from home, they might also want to telework from somewhere else than home, you know, and because they have kids at home and, uh, or just want to change uh, uh, work environment. So WeWork might actually, in this type of, uh, of office, office space, you know, uh, renting space, uh, might actually uh, be in, in higher demand in, in the future. One last point about office space and, and the less a decrease in demand for those like large office space in downtown areas might be one of the solutions for affordable housing because suddenly all these large cities might find themselves with empty office space in their most attractive areas, you know, close from, uh, from uh, public transportation, close from cultural amenities. 
And this might be a big play for, for city leaders to, to, to uh, in terms of zoning, to transform this office space into, uh, into affordable housing. As lockdowns and the pandemic continues into the fall, jobs in the service sectors will likely continue to suffer. Max shared with us some changes he anticipates to see in the future of our cities and the jobs it has to offer. I think it's important to note that not everything is online and not everything will be online. And a simple reason first is that not all people have access to internet. And um, even in the US, you have more than I think, 20 million Americans who don't have access to, to high-speed internet in France, you know, the same. I'm talking only to, to contexts that I know of. Uh, but uh, when you think of emerging uh, countries, this access to internet and, and to this whole you know, digital world uh, is still uh, not, uh, not of, of reach. But in terms of uh, the cities of, of the future, I'm pretty interested in, in by this concept of the of the 15 minute city which has been coined you know, by architect in, uh, in i think in France and in Brazil i think uh, this idea that we might go back to uh, an experience of cities that is much more proximate the the crisis you know has shown uh, has accelerated these impulse for for many cities to uh, to remove cars you know from from downtown areas this idea that people should not have, you know, to uh, to use public transportation you know, for for a long time every day to to access work, but creating cities uh, that provide access to work, to culture, to food in uh, in a perimeter that is much closer than what it is today. And so, uh, and so, for instance, the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, that was one of hers, one of her uh, big, you know, uh, vision for the future of, of Paris, you know, uh, this 15 minute city. And I think that's something. Uh, that is a lot of virtual signaling, you know, because it's very trendy, you know, because it, in a way it, um, it fits well into, uh, into the, the narrative around sustainable cities and, and cities where you can uh, just bike, you know, wherever. But, but I think this is first very uh, tempting in terms of, uh, of the urban experience, but also in terms of sustainability, um, has a, I think has a lot of promising uh, benefits. Imagine that if suddenly... Tech workers, for instance, uh, people who work in the digital industry or, or, or on the, that people who work in the online community do not have to live in those few cities that have been concentrating economic growth and innovation in the past. Imagine the opportunities for the rest you know, of, uh, of, of the countries. You know. Today, it's insane how much technology innovation is concentrating in a few cities. You know, you really have superstar cities, you know, you think of, uh, uh, of London, Paris, you know, uh, Boston, Los Angeles, that are concentrating an insane amount of, uh, of venture capital, of uh, innovation sectors, jobs. If all these firms, you know, that have been uh, uh, concentrating these workers suddenly do not force them to work in their office, this you know, could be an opportunity to, to decrease the, the divide and the polarization between those few cities that have concentrated uh, innovation and those, you know, smaller cities or, or, or less urban areas that have been completely left behind. As of um, the, the negative consequences, I mean, the, the, the economic consequences of the crisis, you know, are being felt, you know, everywhere and, and by mostly everyone. We know, we, we heard, you know, the, the aggregates, you know, the, how much uh, economic growth is going to, to decrease. But at the city level, it's been very hard to, to track, you know, to find the right data to measure those economic consequences. But uh, when you look at, at uh, job numbers and employments, uh, 
or also you know how much consumption has decreased when you think of uh, the decrease in, in tourism in uh, in hospitality uh, this for for cities especially cities that have been highly reliant you know on the service industry uh, the consequences are, are really dire you know <laughs> if you think uh, what in the US is a city the city you know that has been the most uh, affected uh, by the covid-19 crisis economically it's uh, las vegas uh, why well because because las vegas you know rely on uh, obviously the service industry uh, on tourism uh, most people you know get there by plane etc so uh, for for these cities um, there is really a question about you know the, the future of their uh, of their economy to what extent they um, they should diversify their their industries and when you look even more locally um, like during the Great Recession, uh, small businesses are really the ones that have been the, the most uh, uh, struck by, by the crisis. And, and now, you know, these, we look at uh, stimulus packages, you know, by, by national governments. Very often, you know, small businesses have been you know, left, uh, left on the side and, and, and this doesn't bode very well for, for the future. Max mentioned how cities like Las Vegas, with people relying on service sector jobs for a living, have suffered disproportionately from the crisis. This made me wonder if cities will diversify and reconceptualize their approach to the economy and their way of life. I asked Max how this pandemic might offer an opportunity for cities to build back better. Building back better uh, first sounds like a like a buzzword. You know, it's it's a bit of a catch-all phrase that has been used by. Uh, let's say, uh, the United Nations, by uh, national governments, by prime ministers, you know, by business leaders, by mayors as well. This has been sort of the, the rally flag as cities were moving from managing the immediate effect of the, of the health crisis toward thinking about, uh, about reopening and the long-term recovery uh, of, their, uh, of their city country or countries. And with every buzzword, you know, we, we have, to be, uh, we have to, be, to be careful because often it means very different things for, uh, for, for different people. Where most agree on is that we can't go to business as usual because business before the crisis was already bad business. Uh, let me explain. Uh, the crisis has really revealed often how uh, poorly planned our cities were, how unsustainable and especially how unequal uh, our cities are. This uh, may not be a surprise for many, but it has been also for, for some to see that um, many divisions that were hidden were suddenly appearing uh, in a very tragic way. When you look in, at, at the US, you know, it's, we, we know that there, is, there are deep inequalities, uh, territorial, you know, between cities, as well as among cities in the US. But for instance, look, seeing that uh, minorities, and including African-American minorities, were uh, were three times, you know, as in risk of, of dying as, uh, as white Americans, for instance, has really created a sense of urgency that hopefully might be used as an opportunity for city leaders to, to think, you know, uh, to rethink how policy are designed, where we are investing, you know, and I really mean like in which neighborhood, you know, towards which communities are we investing in priority, so that we can uh, tackle at the same time those really intense challenges uh, that we're facing that combine, you know, climate change, you know, environment, but also, uh, also economic inequality. Some state leaders struggled to coordinate and cooperate with each other in the early days of the outbreak. 
I asked Max whether city governments might play a bigger role in the future of international diplomacy. Thinking of cities as a jurisdiction is actually not very helping because often, you know, the, the economic activity, the spread of a virus, <laughs> uh, to that for that matter, do not, you know, uh, neatly fit into the jurisdiction of a city. You know, it just cross, you know, uh, uh, boundaries. And so thinking about, you know, metropolitan areas, urban areas, you know, rather than cities, I think is much more helpful, which requires political will, you know, at the regional level, so that leaders, you know, from, from counties in the US, you know, or cities and, and, and regions can collaborate with each other. About city diplomacy, uh, this has been really interesting, you know, to look at a time when countries, international organizations, were often slow to react to the crisis how much city leaders, uh, mayors, but also you know, community leaders at the very local level have stepped up and, and really showed incredible leadership. When you look at the G7, the G20, uh, the WHO, uh, I mean, the UN Security Council, you know, I mean, whatever is their role, you know, they took months to often to get to a, to a collective response to an agreement. And this has to do for reasons of, of political ideology or just the gridlock, you know, in, that we're seeing today and, and how uh, countries, you know, uh, there's a sort of return of, of unilateralism. In that time, uh, local leaders have shown really great leadership and we've seen uh, city leaders activating their international uh, relations because they had to find information where they could. And if they could not find that information from their, uh, from their country, well, they would just ask, you know, other cities in other countries who had the experience, you know, uh, so think about, for instance, again, the example of Seattle and Jennifer Duncan is, is, uh, is really visible because uh, she really led, you know, a network of cities in the U.S. as Seattle was the first one, the first city to be, uh, to be exposed. And she actively, you know, shared lessons with cities like, like Milan, like Buenos Aires, because this is where, you know, information was, uh, was flowing the, the fastest. Besides sharing of information, uh, which is great and useful, but that's always not enough, uh, cities have also uh, connected across borders to sometimes exchange actual like medical devices. So you've seen those examples of like chi Chinese cities, for instance, quite ironically, uh, sending masks you know, to cities like, uh, like Madrid or, or Milan, uh, when those cities you know, could not get these, uh, these uh, medical uh, uh, equipment from their own country. But a third, you know, after information and, and actual transmission of, uh, of goods, the third you know, big benefit that cities have found in connecting across borders and taking on you know, uh, an international uh, uh, effort has to do with collective influence. Today, cities are not just the spaces where global challenges happen, you know, like a pandemic or migration or climate change, but they're also actors that are taking decisions that directly influence for the worse or the better uh, those global challenges. And today, you know, those cities are not associated to uh, multilateral platforms or, or negotiations, you know, that take decisions on setting standards, you know, for, for climate change, for instance. And we have seen in the past six months an acceleration of cities bending together raise their collective voice and try to influence those international uh, forums. Again, like the G20 or, or like the UN. Not always with great success, but at least they're trying. And I'm 
really optimistic that uh, their voice will be heard because the voice of city leaders should absolutely be heard. COVID-19 is casting a spotlight on many issues, loopholes, and knowledge gaps that exist in our society today. And interestingly, cities have become a magnifying glass for us to investigate these problems deeper. As cities are centers of global economic activities, and now hubs for the spread of COVID-19, policymakers are constantly searching for balancing acts that would give the public a sense of normalcy. As our experts in this episode suggest, these interventions and policy implementations will not be easy and can vary between cities, regions, and continents. That being said, this pandemic could be an opportunity for many of us to question our accepted reality and to bring positive changes to our highly congested and expensive cities in the future. Our guests today were Michaela Couto, Carolina Guimarães, Amini Ayar, Tsiwei Ng, and Max Boucher. I want to thank the Robert Bosch Foundation for supporting the Global Governance Futures Program and for making this podcast possible. A big thank you to our guests on this episode and to our producer, Sonia Sigurbova, and our colleague, Shir Mei Chung from the Global Public Policy Institute. I'm your host, Joel Sandu. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe to this podcast. You'll find loads more on www.ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. And thank you for listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. 